The terms mythology and religion are often bound together, including in the very name of this show. While each word carries a different meaning, many of us end up confused with the line between the two being blurred. Some find the word myth to imply a lie while associating religion with truth. But none can deny that there are many differing religions. Others hold time to be the deciding factor, with yesterday's religions becoming today's mythology. Yet the practices and rituals of the past are never included with the stories under the label of mythology. Many try to draw a distinct line between the two, yet never find anything close to a rule. The key flaw to this approach is looking at mythology and religion as mutually exclusive concepts. Instead, mythology is a crucial part of religious practice. When one stops focusing on the modern definition of myth as something that is untrue and instead leans on the classical definition of myth as a genre of symbolic story, the place of storytelling in religion becomes clear. One of the best examples of this, one of the oldest written sources for ancient Greek religion, is the Homeric hymns. Focusing on the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, we can come to understand the way the Greeks understood their religion and the place of myth within it. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. In the ancient Greek understanding, divinity comes with an extra flavor of personality. Like the aspects of reality over which they preside, each of the Greek gods has a unique personality. The ancient hymns dedicated to the gods begin by telling of these idiosyncrasies, explaining the character and realm of the gods. The hymn to Aphrodite begins. Speak to me, muse, of golden Aphrodite's works, the Cyprians, she who sends sweet desire on the gods and subdues the tribes of mortal men, the birds that fly through the air, and all the many wild beasts that are nurtured by land and sea. The hymn goes on to tell of the three virgin goddesses immune to Aphrodite's power, Athena, Artemis, and Hestia. All others, us mortals included, are vulnerable to the love and beauty over which Aphrodite reigns. This description of Aphrodite and the reverence given to her hints towards the hymn's religious context. This specific hymn is traditionally attributed to the great poet Homer, and while it very well may be his original work, regardless it belongs to an even older tradition of performances at religious shrines and festivals. While the ancient Greeks believed in many gods, 
Often, each person would have a particular devotion to a single one. A homemaker would honor Hestia, goddess of the hearth, while a sailor would honor Poseidon, god of the sea, or a politician would honor Athena, goddess of war and wisdom. The purpose of this introduction for the hymn, then, is to educate the audience about Aphrodite's character and power, making it clear that all who feel love, beauty, and desire should listen to the story of the hymn. As the story of the hymn begins, the gods have grown tired of being enslaved by beauty and desire. So Zeus, the king of the gods, develops a plan to get even with Aphrodite, causing her to fall in love with a mortal man, the Trojan Anchises. For the first time, the goddess is at the mercy of her own power. Aphrodite, the lover of smiles, when once she set eyes on him, was filled with yearning. Desire completely conquered her mind. She entered her fragrant shrine. Then, having gone inside, she closed the gleaming doors, and the graces washed her, anointed her there with oil, with the deathless oil that covers the gods who always exist. Heavenly, sweet-smelling oil, which had been perfumed for her. And when she clothed herself with hell, with fair robes all about her flesh, and was decked with golden adornments, on toward Troy then rushed Aphrodite, lover of smiles, leaving fragrant cypress behind. It is here, in the setting of Aphrodite's shrine, that the hymn uses mythological story to explain religious practice. The perfumes and oils that adorn Aphrodite mirror those that would likely be found within the temple or at a festival where the hymn would be performed. By linking the story of the goddess with something very physical and sensory in perfumes and oils, the hymn provides a divine context to earthly things. As the story continues, it becomes very clear that this theme of the heavens being expressed on earth is central to the hymn. When Aphrodite appears to Anchises, he is instantly overcome in awe at her beauty. Aphrodite's clothing is said to shine more brightly than fire, with the pale moonlight reflected on both her exquisite gold jewelry as well as her skin. Anchises quite wisely suspects instantly that this must be a goddess appearing to him. He offers to build an altar to her and make offerings in every season, again not unlike the altars at which a skilled poet would recite this hymn. Aphrodite, however, is not honest about her identity, hiding what Anchises suspects. Instead, she claims to be a princess from Phrygia, in the central region of modern-day Turkey. She tells Anchises that she was taken by the messenger god Hermes, and brought to the Trojan Anchises to be wed. Anchises, still somewhat in disbelief, replies with a frankly fantastic pickup line. 
If mortal is what you are, I'd be willing, lady with goddesses' looks, having once climbed into your bed to enter Hades' abode. As a quick aside, if you try this line out and it works for you, be sure to leave a comment letting me know, and give thanks to Homer as well for that. Now, Anchises brings Aphrodite to his home, which is decorated with the skins of bears and lions that were once his prey, just as he is now helpless before Aphrodite's beauty. As he removes the jewels and flowers from Aphrodite, Anchises comes to be the only mortal to lay with the goddess of beauty, though he does not realize it. Aphrodite causes sleep to fall upon him, dresses herself once more, and retakes her true, immortal form. When Anchises wakes, Aphrodite is still there, but no longer disguised as a Phrygian princess. It is said that her attire is shining and brilliant, more so than even that of the other gods, and in her true form, her head reaches to the roof of Anchises' house. The Trojan hunter is terrified when he sees the goddess in her true form, dreading the idea of going back to life among mortals, and begs her to bring him back to the heavens with her. Aphrodite, however, must let Anchises down, reminding him that he is immortal, and immortal he must stay. Yet she gives him a promise of a blessing. Anchises, greatest in glory of humans doomed to die, fill yourself now with courage, and don't be so frightened at heart. You will have a son of your own, who amongst the Trojans will rule and children descended from him will never lack children themselves. Though Anchises remains immortal, Aphrodite promises him one aspect of immortality, that he will have a future through his son Aeneas and endless generations after him. It is Aeneas who becomes a hero of the Trojan War, Aeneas, who carries Anchises out of the burning city of Troy, and centuries later, it is told that Aeneas embarks on a journey to Italy, where he and his ancestors would go on to found Rome. So rather than bringing Anchises up to the realm of the gods, by bearing Aeneas, whose line will never end, Aphrodite brings a small piece of divinity down to earth. This enduring life through generations brings comfort to Anchises, as Aphrodite tells him, As soon as you set your eyes upon this offshoot of ours, you'll be filled with joy at the sight, for he'll be very like the gods. As the goddess departs, only a few lines are dedicated to the hymn's closing. In fact, the story makes up the vast majority of the text, a feature which is shared by the other surviving Homeric hymns as well. It is here that we reconnect with the hymn's context, being performed to the masses in praise of Aphrodite. The goddess of beauty was worshipped primarily in two different ways by the ancient Greeks, 
According to Pausinius in Plato's Symposium, one version of the goddess, known as Aphrodite Urania, presents a noble and divine type of love, while the other, called Aphrodite Pandemos, or the people's Aphrodite, refers to a more earthly and sensual type of pleasure. Yet opposing Pausinius, this hymn presents the unity of these two aspects. A divine, mystical encounter leads to sensual pleasure, and the earthly, flesh-and-blood offspring of that encounter grants Anchises a type of immortality, both quite literally saving his life in the Trojan War, and symbolically allowing him to live on eternally through his family line. The story's message is applied both spiritually and practically as even the most cynical listener struggles to deny the transcendent and miraculous beauty found in the new life of a child. This is the purpose of myth to the ancient Greeks, a way to show divinity in what is ordinary, a way to communicate high theology through a language which can be understood by all. It is with this understanding that one may return to the question of mythology and religion. Myth, the word translated as story, with none of the modern understanding of myth as a lie, can be seen to hold a crucial role in religion even today as a way to communicate high theological truths in a way that is easy to understand. Even today, the longest surviving religious texts are not in-depth theological studies, but are collections of stories. And while complex philosophical discourse takes place in the ivory towers of academia, one is far more likely to hear the same message communicated through story in a church pew. All of this is to say that mythology is neither a name for a religion that is no longer practiced, nor is myth a way for us humans to make excuses for things that we don't understand, as some have suggested. In fact, the opposite is true. The best myths serve as a symbolic bridge to communicate the things that we do understand intuitively and spiritually into our practical world. Stay tuned through this message for a reading of the very short second Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. I thank you so much for joining in this one. It took a good deal of work to find and research this hymn, but it was so worth it as I feel this really does give a beautiful insight into just how the Greeks understood mythology. And if we can apply that to the way we use story in our practices today, then we can understand our own culture a little more through it. Now next time, we are going to be going just about as far as the Greeks as we can, as we're going to go with some mythology of the Pacific. However, before we do, and I do hope to see you there, let's hear one last thing from the Greeks. This hymn, only a single page, tells of the goddess's birth. 
I will sing of that beautiful goddess who wears a crown of gold, revered Aphrodite, who owns all on Cyprus, surrounded by sea, each circling headdress of towers. There, strong Zephyr's moist breath through crashing waves conveyed her amid the soft foam to shore. The seasons whose fillets are golden gave her a welcome of joy and wrapped her in deathless clothes. Upon her immortal head, they placed a beautiful crown of exquisite craft in gold. With flowers of mountains copper and costly gold, they pierced the lobes of her ears, and about her soft neck and gleaming breast, they adorned her with chains of gold, of the sort in which they themselves, the seasons whose fillets are golden, would both go adorned to the gods, lovely dance in their father's abode. But then, her adornment complete, they led her amongst the immortals, and they were amazed at the sight. They gave her their right hands in greeting, and each god prayed that she be his own wedded wife to bring home. So amazed were they at the form of Kithera's goddess, who wears a crown of the violet's bloom. Farewell to you, black-eyed goddess, whose spirit is sweet and kind. In the contest, permit this bard to win, and make ready my song. But I will call to my mind both you and another song. I do hope to see you next time, where that other song is going to take us to New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Can't wait to see you there.